Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, local taxpayers in Hamilton are paying higher than average taxes and homeowners are struggling to keep up. In an unscheduled interview yesterday, Global News' Alan Carter met up with Doug Ford, who guaranteed that anybody who really needs legal aid will receive it. Also, Democratic leadership candidates are calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump in the wake of the redacted Mueller report. Is that really a wise decision? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about your municipal taxes. Uh, nobody likes to pay taxes. Everybody seems to think that they pay too much in taxes, especially municipal taxes. Uh, they don't get the services for the money they did. Well, there's a couple of studies that uh, City Council were presented with the other day uh, that are rather disturbing and actually kind of underscore, I think, some of the, the challenges that many of us are facing here. Overall, Hamilton's taxes are 6% higher than the average among 20 Ontario cities with populations of greater than 100,000. Tax rates here in Hamilton, for example, are higher than Toronto, higher than Burlington, higher than Kitchener, and higher than Oakville. Uh, There's a couple of other things that we can get into in just a couple of minutes, but why is this happening? Let's bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. How are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Does this news uh, bother you? Does it surprise you? Well, let's deal with the second one first. Does it surprise me? No. I, I was actually aware of this all the way back 20 years ago when we were creating the new city of Hamilton. Um, th- that was one of our concerns at the time, was that Hamilton's taxes seemed to be out of whack with the people around it. Uh, so what could we do? Now, back in 20 years ago, we tried to chop the budget, take some money out, and we did. We actually took, I think it was 35 or $40 million out of the budget, and in that one year, there wasn't a tax increase. But it's very hard to do because all municipalities face inflation, and the biggest source of that inflation is wages. When you look at the budget for the city of Hamilton or any actually publicly funded thing, hospitals, boards of education, universities, wages make up such a big part, and every year people get a little bit of a wage increase that gets passed to the tax base. Now, the second part of your question was, uh, was it surprising and is it alarming? It's concerning, and to me, it isn't so much that we're 6% above the average. That's actually a great improvement. Uh, 20 years ago, Bill, we were 15% higher. Five years ago, we were 11% higher. We're 6% higher. That means because we've been keeping our rate of increase lower than other neighboring municipalities, it's the neighboring municipalities that are helping to close the gap. They're putting slightly bigger increases than we are, and so over time we're getting closer together. But uh, it, it, I don't really know how to fix the problem, and that's the interesting challenge here. Uh, municipal taxes are the only ones that we bill people for. In other words, if I ask the average person, do you pay more a provincial tax or pay more federal tax, their answer is always no, 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 the rates haven't changed at all. Well, that's true, the rates haven't changed, but if you got a raise of any kind, so did the province, so did the federal government, they take their tax before you ever see it. They take it out of your gross pay. We always think about what is our net pay, and therefore we don't notice more money. But in the case of municipality, we actually send you a bill every year. We actually send it to you twice a year. So you can actually see the number, and that number, oh my gosh, look at how it's going up. Uh, so that, to me, there's only two things to do, and then we'll I'll hand this back to you, Bill. One, of course, is to always look at the municipal budget and say, does everything that's in the municipal budget have to be in there? Are there things that we could remove, maybe charge a user fee for or something like that, get it out of the tax bill to make sure people are only paying the, the amount they absolutely have to pay? 
And then the second thing is there another way to fund municipal government that doesn't see us send people a bill. Those seem to me to be the only two ways to deal with this problem. Well, let's talk a little bit, and I'm glad you brought up the idea about 20 years ago in the amalgamation. I remember those discussions and debates. And and when staff were asked back in those days, Marvin, about why the difference, and it was substantial, more, much more substantial than then, uh, the, the, they usually came back and said, look, it's apples and oranges. Hamilton's different than other cities. Does that argument still hold water? Well, there is some truth to this, Bill. Hamilton is a split city, uh, meaning we have a mountain and we have a lower city, and we've got this big, funny green space that runs through the middle. Now, we all love the escarpment. We all love that green space that runs through that lovely lung, but it does cause problems. For instance, snow clearing. We've got to clear the snow and put sand and salt down on all those access roads that a flat city like an Oakville or a Burlington doesn't have the same challenge with. Same thing with maintenance. You know, last I think it was just last year, I don't think it was this winter, but maybe the winter before, that we had uh, some of the limestone on the escarpment give way. It shut down one of the roads for a while. We had to rebuild the retaining wall that held it up there. That's a cost that Toronto doesn't have to bear. So we, we do have some interesting geography here that does cost us something. Even think about transit. There, there isn't really a true north-south road in this city. Anyway, if I want to go from the mountain to the lower city, I seem to always have to do a Z, jog over this way for a while, and then come back down on an angle or vice versa. And all of that means buses take longer to route. They, they drive more kilometers without passengers uh, getting on and off. It is a slightly different city to manage. It's also an older city. So when I compare myself to Burlington and Oakville, we are a city that has been around proudly for more than 100 years, uh, but you can remember in the, in the original wards, wards 1, 2, 3, and 4, we have a lot of housing that was built between the First and Second World Wars. They were built with a different kind of model of infrastructure. Back in those days, there were back alleys to take your horse and your horse and buggy. They, they weren't so car-oriented. The newer cities, uh, Burlington, Oakville, Mississauga, of course, all centered around the car, I think they're going to catch up to us because eventually they're going to have to replace their aging infrastructure. It's a little hard to compare a new city to an older city. All right, I'm going to bring up an old argument, but I still think it's germane here, and I don't even know if it was discussed at this council meeting the other day. Uh, some of these are what they call mandated programs, and, I, and councillors are quite right in saying that, look, a lot of the stuff that they have to pay, which means what we have to pay, are mandated programs that the city must do. But there's an argument to be made that maybe they go a little bit too far. For instance, uh, the municipality must have one an, uh, one long-term care facility. We have two. That's right. uh, they should have access to two athletic. We have three golf courses that we pay for here, which is unheard of in most other municipalities. But any time, Marvin, that anybody has has the audacity to raise these issues and say, you know what, maybe maybe we're just trying to do too much. Uh, uh, there's such a pushback right now that they just say, well, it's just the way things are going to have to be here. Yeah, so let me give you a slightly different example. Uh, this winter, there was a great discussion about uh, clearing sidewalks, and yep. somebody came up with a number that I think they said, if we all paid $40 more a year, we could have our sidewalks cleared. So there were a whole lot of people who said, yeah, I'd, I'd pay another $40. Okay, but you're upset that your taxes are going up $90 at the moment. They're really, you know, we're in the same ballpark here in terms of an increase. On the margin, we can seem to justify anything. The problem is when you add all those marginal things together, that's what gets you to the kind of budget. I said earlier, is the municipal taxes going to what we absolutely have to have? And those are all great examples that you gave. Do we have to have a golf course? Do we have to have two uh, care facilities? In fact, do we have to run them if we have to own them? Back 20 years ago, Bill, 
There are two facilities, you're correct. There was one that was Hamilton-Wentworth, and there was one that was owned by Hamilton. And the transition board put out the idea, put out the idea that maybe St. Peter's Hospital should run one of them, and St. Joseph's Villa should run the other. They're really experts in long-term care. I could argue, what does the city really know? Now, we could own the building and maintain the building. That could still be a city of Hamilton thing. But in terms of operations, why don't we get the experts in to do this? Well, people were very upset with me. How dare you talk about that? This is what we would call a a greater public sector partnership. I I trust St. Peter's. I trust St. Joseph's Villa. They do a great job with what they have. Why don't we see if we can strike a deal with them and then take that out of the tax base or the golf course? If we have to own the golf course, do we actually have to operate it? Maybe like we've done with Cops Coliseum and Hamilton Place, we have a private operator running it, uh, but then it comes out of the tax base. Even then, 20 years ago, Bill, this was one that you won't even remember, but uh, cemeteries. There's a rule in Ontario that any time a, a private cemetery falls into disrepair, the city inherits it. And, of course, it's supposed to inherit it with any money that's left behind to maintain it. But normally when it falls into disrepair, it's because that money is depleted. So there's a small part of our tax bill that goes to maintain the cemeteries. The cemetery people themselves said, why don't you create us as a little nonprofit company? Uh, Give us a little loan to get us started. We'll pay you back as we sell graves, and then we'll get out of the tax base. That made such wonderful sense to me. Keep out of the taxes those things which really don't have to be there. You've got to have garbage. You've got to have snow clearing. I get that. You've got to have parks and recreation. But do you have to have some of those other things? But I will tell you this, Bill, because back when you studied it 20 years ago, all of that might get you one year where your taxes didn't go up. If you could take all that stuff out, maybe there's one year where there's no increase. But this uh, every year annual increase, this rate of inflation that compounds, as Andrew Dreschel pointed out in a column he wrote, you know, 2% a year over 10 years, well, suddenly your taxes are up 25%. It is it, hard to stop that uh, unless we can find another way to pay for services. Let's talk about one of the other, I think, very important elements of, of this way that we pay property taxes uh, in, in this province, not just in the city, uh, and that's the ability to pay. And, and there's an element here in this report, Marvin, that I think is, is worthy of talking about here, mm-hmm. uh, and that's median income. Hamilton's household income is average $93,400. The average among those other 20 cities we talked about is 108000 So as a result, we pay about 4.6% of our household income on property tax. Most of those other cities, it's only 4 Now, that's significant. It is. Uh, and, and so, again, remember that the taxes that we charge people are not based on their ability to pay. The closest we get is based on the value of your property. So in Hamilton, we have a higher than average rate of retirement. If you look at, we call it the participation rate in the economy, while, while we have very low unemployment, I think it's only about 3.8%, one of the lowest unemployment rates in the province, it's because we have a higher than average retirement rate. Well, when people retire, of course, they lose an income stream. And this is the unfortunate thing. I buy a home 40 years ago, and I live in the home, and maybe I paid 25000 or $50,000 for the home 40 years ago. But your taxes are based on the assessed value. Uh, there is an old assumption that, of course, a richer person lives in a more expensive house. But in some cases, it's a more expensive house simply, again, thanks to the marching of inflation over time. person who lives in there, their income is quite fixed. Maybe they've been retired for 10, 15, 20 years, um, Canada pension plan, and maybe, if they're lucky, they have a little private pension. Uh, how do we get around that? Now, again, the, the city of Hamilton does have a, a way to help some seniors on fixed incomes, and there are some, 
some grants or, or uh, deferral payments and things like that that can kick in. But um, that's another challenge for us. And, and I'll just build on that, Bill. If you look at where we're getting revenues to pay, 88% of the revenue the city gets comes from residential taxpayers. There was a time in the 1960s when we built those golf courses, when we built Cobb's Coliseum and Hamilton Place, what have you, where it was only about 25% of the revenue was coming from residential. We were getting a lot of money from the business side of Hamilton. Well, of course, the business side of Hamilton has, has shrunk. It has become smaller and smaller and smaller. And as and Mr. Dreschel also pointed out in his column, we've, we really yell about the fact that Hamilton has been doing a billion dollars in building permits for each of the last 10 years. That's $10 billion of construction in Hamilton. But much of it is going into residential things like building condos or townhouses or maybe something for the hospital or something for the university. It isn't exactly business growth, and that's something, again, that's always got to be on the mind of the councillors. What can we do to get that side of the assessment up? If we can simply get keep keep the residential taxes where they were and get 25% of it coming from the private sector, we wouldn't have to raise taxes at the same rate we did before. But unfortunately, our business side is, is really quite, quite small in comparison to, say, a city like Toronto or even Mississauga. If there is an appetite, and maybe that's the big question here, is there an appetite uh, for drastic change to try to get this thing turned around? I mean, these numbers here, as you mentioned, this is 20 years now. It's more, more than 20 years, really. Oh, yes. But I mean, obviously, since amalgamation came in, there was some great studies that went on about a lot of this stuff, and the comparators uh, were, were rampant at that time. Uh, and it looks like we've made some progress, but not nearly as much as taxpayers would like to see. How do we do this? How do we how do we take a big chunk out of this? I, I mean, it's going to take dramatic change, and I don't know that there's an appetite for that on council, let alone in the community. Mm-hmm. So, well, there's two, we've raised two different questions at the same time, Bill. How do you do it, and is there an appetite for it? I think there is an appetite to make changes if what we call them the win-win change. If if nothing really changes for the average citizen and I can save a couple of bucks, who wouldn't do something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the easy to do. The hard to do is where you have to really look at something like a golf course and say, is it appropriate for us to have this? Or Or look at another service and say, is it appropriate for us to have this? Those are tougher decisions. Oddly enough, easier to do right now in the first year of a municipal councillor's mandate because, again, you've got four years before you have to face the electorate again. Even if you anger some people today, maybe in two or three years they can see the wisdom of your moves. I don't really feel there's a whole lot of appetite, but it really does come about, uh, and, and I know this is going to seem odd when I say this to you, going back to our staff and put that question to them and saying, all right, Suppose I wanted to take $10 million or $20 million or $30 million out of this budget. What's something I could do that would pay that? And don't give me a hundred things that each save me a buck here or there. What's something big I could do? And then use the innovation of our staff and, and get behind them and support that. But I just tell you, Bill, anything you're going to talk about, it's going to be splitting the community. There will be some people who think it's great. High time should have done that 30 years ago, and there are other people who will go, "Oh my God, you're you're, just, you're putting a heart through the stake or a stake through the heart of Hamilton." Please don't even think about it. You, you, this is the kind of leadership we need. Oddly enough, this is the kind of leadership that Doug Ford is bringing. Nothing seems sacred to Mr. Ford. He's prepared to axe and burn and slash all over the place. I just don't know if we have anybody like that on council. 
Uh, nice segue, because that's what we're going to do right after the break, Marvin. <laughs> uh, this is we didn't th- even plan this. No, I know, I know, but uh, obviously there's a synchronicity here, uh, because they, the two stories are related. Thanks, as always. Great having you on the show again, Marvin. Glad to be here, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you just when you do this thing for a living, you do talk radio, uh, interactive talk radio like we do, uh, you just never know who's going to call. And that was the case yesterday when our good friend Alan Carter was uh, doing his show, The Alan Carter Show, which is uh, heard uh, from at noontime, of course, uh, Monday to Friday on our uh, sister station in Toronto, AM640. And uh, they were talking about uh, one of the aspects of uh, some of the Ford cutbacks. And lo and behold, who do you think should call but the Premier himself? Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter, the uh, anchor of Global News at 530 and 6 and host of The Alan Carter Show on AM640. Alan, great to have you back in the program. How are you doing today? Bill, you're a cheeky fellow with the Carly <laughs> Rae Jepsen intro there. I like, I love that. Everything. We have a Carly Rae, we have a Carly Ray premier now. Pretty much, pretty much. So set set the scene. What was going on tomorrow? I mean, you were talking about. Uh, I guess it was the uh, legal aid stuff, essentially, wasn't it? Well, what we had uh, started off by talking about was this whole thing about beer and wine in corner oh, stores. Yeah. And this sort of came out from a, a, a fundraising email that uh, Doug Ford sent out on Monday, saying. You know, are you with me? Uh, we're going to, you know, Alan, we're not going to treat you like a baby anymore. But, you know, should we put beer and wine in corner stores? Well, why not? Well, I asked why not. And one of the reasons that the people don't realize is that the previous government signed a deal with the beer store that said, okay, this we're going to put uh, beer and wine in, in uh, grocery stores, but then you'll be able to do all the rest of these things. And and in exchange for that, you have to spend $10 million upgrading your stores and all the rest of this stuff. Well, if we go in there as a province and now say, no, 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 sorry, we're going to put them in corner stores now. The agreement says that there are potential financial penalties for that. So we were talking about that. And I have a lot of fun on my radio show. I have this thing where I just use little clips of uh, of Doug Ford, the premier, saying things, and then I just play them out of context. Mm-hmm. So like, I'll just have him say, everything's made of carbon, for no reason. <laughs> um, or uh, yesterday I, 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 uh, I, I made a joke about him going to the bathroom at the uh, chorus building and then played a clip of him saying, I'm going to have to sanitize this place from top to bottom. <laughs> so, you know, and so I'm doing all of this ridiculous, pure all juvenile stuff, and my producer says, uh, Doug Ford online too. And sure enough, <laughs> there's the premier all upset. <laughs> He said that uh, he almost ran into three telephone poles while listening to the radio show, which is interesting, Bill, because when you're the premier, they don't let you drive. Usually not. They don't. You're not allowed to. But anyway, the metaphor was there, I guess. So he. <laughs> I guess so, he was not being so, literal. So what was his analysis of your show, Alan? Uh, well, I, I, he told my, produ- well, my producer before he came on, is put me on with that lefty, uh, and I'm going to set him straight. <laughs> so I think that kind of gives you a sense of how we felt. <laughs> <laughs> That's that sets the scene for it. Uh, so, and, and you covered a, 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 a few different things. Obviously, the beer and wine, and, and you're absolutely right. We did that segment on the show last week, and of course, they tried to blame the previous government. But that's not unlike uh, some of the green initiative programs that uh, that he arbitrarily canceled just after he got into office. Notwithstanding the fact that there are penalty clauses, and and this is a huge penalty clause that's uh, that's in play here. Well, it, potentially it could be. I mean, if you're talking about the beer and wine thing, I mean, it could be 
you know, hundreds of millions of dollars is what the speculation was, it has been. And, and I'm not talking speculation from people who don't know. I'm talking about industry insiders. Now, the beer store won't say anything. But we mentioned this, you know, $100, $200 million number. And I think that's really what incensed the premier. And he called up and he said, that is ludicrous. That is not going to happen. And then when I asked him flat out, I said, would you accept that the government had to pay some kind of financial penalty to get us out of this deal that, you know, that you might argue is a bad deal for the province and we just have to get out of it. And he said, well, we're not there yet, but we're in negotiations with the beer store. So I think, you know, he would not rule out paying some kind of financial penalty. Certainly they are currently trying to rework that deal. And when you rework a deal, I, I don't know, Bill, have you ever tried to break a contract? And then go in and say to the people, we're going to get, well, give you, I'm going to break this contract and I'm going to give you less than you had before. Well, that's not the way it works. No, invariably. I mean, that's why that clause was in there. And, and, and it may well be a, a lousy deal. I mean, I've talked to some poli sci professors and economists that said, you know, the, the win, or actually, it was Dwight Duncan, I think, was the finance minister at the time, if I recall. And, and it was essentially so that those beer companies, the big three beer companies, would not raise the price of beer for a little while. And, and this was a heck of a price to pay. But I mean, that's, that was what was in place. And, the question I was asking was, since the, I assume they knew that this contract was in place, why did they announce that they were just arbitrarily going to do this and put the beer and wine in there and, and not mention the fact that it could cost us a couple of hundred million bucks? Well, yeah, like, you know, I, I have a little bit of a problem with this government and it's, you know, and it's a predilection to go to rhetoric over actual results. And so you have the finance minister prior to the budget announcing that they're going to do this. Remember, they'd already promised it. Mm -hmm. Then in the budget, he promised again that he was going to do it. And But the reality is, is that we're still in negotiations with the beer store, which we have to negotiate with because we have a signed legal document with them. And so we have to do this renegotiation. And there has been no mention about, like you say, a possible financial penalty for doing it. And, and and so to suggest that they were premature in putting this in the budget, I think is probably an understatement at this cage, a stage rather. But it's it's just it's, it's one of these things where I know and people are say, well, it's all uh, it's you know it's the previous liberal government's fault. Maybe it was, and maybe you didn't like the deal. Uh, and but at the same time, you think that the incoming administration would say, look, at we've got to wrestle this to the ground before we actually figure we can do something about this. And and they haven't even begun to do that now. And uh, your point's well taken. Uh, we're talking about three major international companies here that are selling beer here with their monopoly that they call the beer store. And uh, I can't see them backing down very much, if at all, Alan. Well, I mean, the beer store's makeup has been changed. That's one of the things that the new beer framework did. It uh, opened up the ownership to a lot more smaller and craft brewers. So it's no longer the monopoly that it was prior to 2015. But to the larger point, and this is, I think, what really annoyed the premier is that when we were talking about the beer story, we, we, we raised the issue of Hydro One. Now, you remember Mayo Schmidt. Mm -hmm. remember, remember the $6 million man yeah. who was, who was going to get fired with absolutely no severance? And then it turned out that he, got a, he might not have got quote-unquote severance, but he got a substantial package of shares and other kinds of money to be able to make him go away. And then, subsequent to that, you may recall that under the previous administration, Hydro One had tried to purchase a California um, entity, a, a power company in California. And then that company, uh, the, the regulators rather, in that area of the world, after Mayo Schmidt was greased, 
they said, well, wait a second, we see too much political interference here. We're canceling the deal. And that came with a significant penalty for the province of Ontario. And the, the, the premier was incensed that we would say this. But the fact of the matter is, it's true. Now, he said, well, you know, hey, the, the stock price actually, you know, Hydro One stock price went up after this deal got canceled. And that's true, too. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there was a financial penalty because of interference by this government. And and that's the thing that I, I think rankles an awful lot of people here, is that they love to talk about the good news. Hey, I'm going to give you a beer in the corner store, but oh, they don't talk about the price. Uh, you know, we're going to do this deal, but uh, they don't talk about the penalty phrase. We're going to cut these programs because we think what William government did was wrong. This is costing us an awful lot of money, and uh, it's, it's got to come from someplace. And, and uh, you know, and that, you know what that someplace usually is. Well, yeah, and I think on a higher level, I think that here is where people are getting going to get increasingly tired with this government, is they treat us like we're idiots. They really do. Like, it is a constant, it's a constant parade of, oh, hey, there's going to be a 10% cut in tuition fees right across the board. Isn't that great? By the way, we're changing OSAP and taking away all this other stuff. And then they're like, oh, hey, we're going to eliminate the uh, wait list for autism services. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, by the way, we've done this other thing and everybody's upset. You know, like, it's this kind of, oh, here's a shiny thing over here and trying to bury stuff that we can't see somewhere else. And that is, I think that's destructive. Well, and the, and look, look, let's put this in perspective. I mean, you know, as you and I talked about this leading up to the election last uh, last year. And and everybody, I think, pretty much knew that the Liberal government, the Wynn government, was pretty much dead in the water. And there was a litany of the reasons why. And and so, the, I mean, the tide had already been cast. The tide had already been cast in situations like that. But there was a promise, not just by Ford, but by everybody else during that leadership and subsequent election, uh, to say, we're going to do better. We're going to be more transparent. Uh, we're going to be honest with taxpayers. We, and I know that's a promise that just what everybody makes in elections. But I guess after what we saw with the previous government, we thought, well, okay, maybe they are going to be more transparent. It's 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 like that old line from the Who song, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they claim... That it's a different perspective, certainly. Sure, but you're right. And I want to quickly, before we run out of time, just move to the... the I mean... Keep in mind, when the premier calls you unexpectedly, and who knows, Bill, he may be listening to us right now. He may be on the line for you when I'm done. Uh, but w- when the premier calls you unexpectedly, you know, you've got to really just rely on what it is that you know in your head. I wasn't prepped for the premier to call in. Yeah. But I asked him about legal aid, and I asked him about changes to legal aid. And, you know, he keeps saying, well, there's no cuts in our budget. There's no cuts in our budget. Well, but that's not true. We know that's not true because in the budget there is a reduction in funding for legal aid. And when I pressed him on what this human cost would be, he made an unusual promise. He promised. He said, quote, unquote, I promise anyone who needs legal aid will get it. Just call my office. So there you go. If you're having trouble, if anybody out there is listening to me and, you know, you you find out because that legal aid uh, funding change is already in place. That oh, you're finding out, oh, you're not, a, you don't have access to legal aid anymore. Just call the premier. He'll, he guarantees he'll get it for you. Where's that money going to come from? I, I don't. Perhaps, perhaps from him. I don't. From Deco Labels. I don't know. He was aware of the fact, was he not, that you have to qualify for legal aid anyway? You can't just put, you know, you can't just call one eight hundred legal aid and say, yeah, hook me up. I need so I'm not going to pay for a lawyer. I want to get the province to do this. There are certain criteria that you have to meet. 
Uh, and if they meet those, but all of a sudden they don't qualify anymore, there's the conundrum that he's created. Well, what the head of legal aid has said is that already they will now have to stop taking new cases of refugees. Remember, the legal aid helps refugees, immigrants, new Canadians. And, you know, Mr. Ford then quickly sort of retreated into this whole, you know, illegal border crossing. And I just don't know. I just don't think that those two things, it's not the same issue, right? If you're here in the country, uh, we, we have a system that says, you know, you get a hearing. Uh, and you also, you know, if you can't afford it, you get legal aid. And and now the cuts to it, according to the legal, and I don't make this up. I'm st- I'm quoting, you know, the head of legal aid that says that this puts us in an incredibly difficult position going forward. And the premier says, well, you know, if you know, in terms of a human cost, if, if you qualify and you still can't get it because of funding issues, call me. I, I the part of the interview that kind of got me. He first of all didn't believe the thirty percent cut, notwithstanding you know the numbers are right there. Uh, and he says, uh, "This I know you know this. It's a quote from the show yesterday. He says, if they looked into it, there's more money being spent on lawyer fees and less on cases. Uh, but he doesn't want the money going to the lawyers. Does he not understand what the, the, the whole purpose of this, this program is for? Well, I, don't, I wondered about that myself. And, and then I, I guess, you know, you, you listen back to the stuff and, you, you know, as you, I'm sure you do it too. I kicked myself all last, last night about, oh, I should have asked this. I should have followed up with that. You know, if I was smarter, I would have said this. But I, I, I look at what he says there about money to the lawyers, and then I, I think, okay, well, maybe that, that could be a very valid argument. Um, but none of the funding changes that they're making address that systemic problem. It's not like they've figured out a way to get the money to the people who need it and not the lawyers. They're just taking away the money. Well, it's not the fee. and I don't profess to be you know, an legal expert, although I'm, I'm married to a great lawyer. I, I understand a little bit about this. And I can tell you, first of all, right off the I'm top, Alan, that. I don't know any lawyers that ever got rich on legal aid, okay? Uh, it doesn't happen. More often than not, the money that's directed there goes to pay for the cost of, of, of processing the application. There is work that needs to be done, and there's a fee for that because it costs money to access records and do this sort of thing. Uh, and again, there's I, no, nobody's driving a Maserati now because, hey, boy, I got legal aid cases, and boy, I, I'm rolling in dough. It doesn't happen that way. Again, it, just, it goes to the idea that they don't seem to comprehend exactly what the program is for and who it program is supposed to be benefiting. There, it, it does seem that way. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I, when you look at, if you listen to the entire interview, which is, is posted, um, if you want to take a listen to it and you go to my Twitter, it's right there. Uh, globalnews.ca has it. You can listen to the entire thing. And I just come back to this sort of, you know, the, the, this ability that, that, that the premier has to sort of gloss over some high level stuff. Like when you start talking about, you know, carbon tax and, and why are you spending our tax dollar money for ads to criticize the gov? you know, after you promised us, that you would bring back in legislation that would uh, have the Auditor General oversee all ads, and you haven't done that. And even the Auditor General says the ads you're currently running about the carbon tax, she would not approve if she had that power. So, and then, and then at the same time, you know, you talk about legal aid, he talks about legal border crossing. You talk about Hydro One, and then he talks about the stock uh, price instead of the, you know, instead of the actual charges. So there's this sort of, you know, dodging that they do, uh, that the premier does, where he kind of goes on a high level and he likes to talk, you know, in terms of 
well, this is all great for the people, but when we get into the nitty-gritty and what actually is going on, I think there's a disconnect. Well, and this is something that's happening in politics, frankly, on both sides of the border right now, is is leaders right now are just shooting talking points out there, figuring that, you know, their the base, the people that just love that particular party, are going to buy into the hook, line, and sinker because it's them that's saying it, and they don't do the homework on this. And and to suggest it and be critical, as you have been, as I have been on, on our programs, does not necessarily mean we want the old government back. Of course not. They, they've made their mistakes, and we did have to turn the page here. But we expected more from these guys, and we're not getting a whole lot more. I mean, the carbon pricing is an example. I mean, he doubled down on that last week and said we're probably heading to a recession now, even though every economist in the country, including most conservative economists, say that's not true. It's just not going to happen. But, you know, his I can see some of the reaction on Twitter. Oh, he says it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. I mean, so we in a roundabout way, we've got ourselves to blame for this because we just seem to blindly follow these leaders, whatever political stripe they might be. Yeah, and I think our job, your job, my job, uh, my job, all of my jobs, <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is, is to try and hold those in power to account. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I did it when it was the Wynn government. I did it when it was the McGinty government. And, you know, the liberals complained bitterly that I was being partisan and too hard on them. And now that it's the conservatives, I have precisely the same thing from the conservatives that, you know, say I'm a partisan and I'm a liberal shill and a lefty and all the rest of that. And I mean, that is the job of journalism, which is to shine a light on these, you know, sort of off the cuff things that our leaders say and say, well, hold on. Is that really true? Well, listen, uh, and you do a great job of it, and uh, I'm going to let you go now because I know you have to prep for when he calls you again later on today, Alan. So <laughs> this is going to be a weekly feature from what I understand. So- I, ho- I hope so. I hope he calls. <laughs> I hope he calls every week and thinks of it as a therapy session. There you go. (laughs) Dr. Allen. Just call up Dr. Allen. I'll make you feel better. Allen Carter from uh, Global News at 530 and 6, and, of course, the Allen Carter Show on AM 640. Thanks again, Allen. Great talking with you. Bill, always great to be on. I appreciate you calling. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, the other concern, of course, is happening in the States with the uh, release of the redacted Mueller report. Uh, and uh, some concerns right now about where to go. What are the next steps going to be? There are some Democrats, some political uh, rivals uh, that are looking at this and simply saying, well, it's over. Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump seems to feel that way, and a lot of the Republican uh, leaders seem to be following in line behind him. Some of the Democrats, though, including some of the presidential hopefuls, are suggesting it's time to look at impeachment as a possibility here. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, specializing in Canadian and U.S. politics. Good morning, Barry. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Listen, uh, for anybody who was waiting the, the Mueller report, anticipating that this was going to change the dynamic uh, and, and move us in one direction or the other, has got to be disappointed because, and not so much, in as much as I know there was new information there about about possibility of, of obstruction of justice, we can talk about that in a second. But them that believe Trump still believe Trump. Then that didn't believe him still don't believe him. I don't know if we've, if we've gained any ground here. Look, the, the reason why things are gridlocked is because Republicans are afraid for for impeachment to work. And again, we'll, maybe we'll talk about impeachment in just a minute because yep. the whole concept is misunderstood by most people and, frankly, is really no longer relevant in American politics. Um, it was part of a constitution designed 230 years ago. Made based on all sorts of assumptions that were relevant then, but have long since ceased to be relevant. 
But getting back to the question of what's going to happen for the for things to change in America, um, it's the the opinions not of Democrats or even of swing voters uh, has to change. Republicans have to change. If as long as the Republican base is wedded to the fact that Donald Trump is wonderful and that he's being treated unfairly by the system, and Trump has done everything he can to fund to to develop that and fan it. As long as that's going on, the Republicans in Congress aren't moving because that's their core vote, and they are absolutely critical for their renomination. The Republicans still have a problem in terms of the general election that will happen in 2020, and that's, that's another matter. But before they can even get to that, they have to be able to win primaries. And if Trump comes out to campaign against them in the past, uh, they have not been e- able to proceed. So that's the real problem, and that's why so far I don't think things have changed very much as a result of this report. And quite frankly, I don't think they're going to. Um, now, getting back to the question of imp- remembering that impeachment is only indictment. It doesn't mean that Donald Trump in itself um, would, would leave office. Indictment in the indictment process or impeachment can in fact be undertaken in the House of Representatives just with Democratic votes. But for Trump to be removed, it requires in fact two thirds of the Senate. That would require at least 20 votes, or almost or just about 20 votes in the uh, in the Senate. And at the moment, I'm not sure there's even one. Um, the upshot of all of this then is that the American political process is broken. The Constitution doesn't work. The um, polarization between Republicans and Democrats, I was just at a family event over the weekend, and indeed I, it was, it, the tension was, was thick there. Um, America just doesn't work anymore. It's broken. The uh, Constitution is part of the problem. Donald Trump has only made it worse. So to, to tie it up in a pretty bow and to suggest that somehow this is all going to come together isn't very effective. Now, various politicians, uh, you're making reference to Elizabeth Warren, for example, who has come out and said mm-hmm. impeachment is necessary. And in a traditional sense, there probably is enough evidence for impeachment. But um, impeachment isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to result in the removal of Trump. They can spin their wheels for the next year, which is kind of what happened back in 98 with regard to, to Bill Clinton. But it's, it's not going to re, re, uh, result in the removal of the president. The removal of the president will only come as a result of the next election. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that going through an impeachment process that's going to divide Americans, they're already divided, but are going to make it even worse and create even more hostility at family dinners. Uh, that Indeed, I'm not sure that that's going to actually constrain, do anything instructive, including leading to the defeat of Donald Trump. I still think Trump is vulnerable in 2020 at the moment. He's never ever even hit the, 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 20, the 50% mark in terms of support. But the, the, the notion of whether people are in favor of impeachment or against impeachment has more to do with political calculations on their part than it does any sort of constitutional provisions, which are largely irrelevant today, 230 years later, anyhow. Barry, let me ask you if I could just back up for a bit, because you and I haven't talked for a little while here, but uh, since the release of the report especially, uh, what what you read on some of the criticism that's gone on here, and the report itself, that uh, the redacted report, that I guess, that we've seen, uh, but but the way, that, of course, that the attorney general uh, handled it uh, with his little four-page summary of, of uh, you know this this huge report, uh, then the press conference he had before the report was released, which was really nothing more than cheerleading, and even the people on Fox News were accusing Barr of, of doing just that. Uh, but the bigger criticism I'm hearing from a lot of Democrats is, look, we wanted a smoking gun. We wanted some indictments. We wanted the finger pointed at, if not the president, maybe his son and, and, and some of the other people there. None of that was in there. They were looking for that aha moment, like to go back to Watergate, you know, when the tapes were discovered. And that's what swung a lot of Republicans over to say to the president, look, you've got to back down because, you know, we can't support you anymore. There's, there was nothing in that report that's really going to make that sort of a, a, a sea change, is there? 
Yeah, look, Barr's behavior has been a disgrace. Actually, if they wanted to impeach somebody, I, would, I think that Barr would be <laughs> yeah. a more appropriate target than, uh, than Trump because, in fact, Barr wasn't elected. Um, again, I can just sort of say amen to all the things you mentioned with regard to Barr. He's handled it incredibly poorly. For, for somebody who was thought to have a, um, a real reputation in Washington, he's, he's sullied it. No, there is not the, 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 there's certainly not the, the smoking gun kind of event. I'm not sure that was ever expected. There's plenty of evidence that, in fact, uh, that uh, Trump is, um, was, in fact, uh, obstructing justice, perhaps colluding as well, but certainly um, obstructing justice. Um, by the standards that the Republicans applied to Bill Clinton 20 years ago, that would have been more than enough for uh, for an indictment. Well, I'm or, sure you've seen that clip of Lindsey Graham from 20 years ago when he was actually one of the ones prosecuting Clinton. And Grassley and uh, and uh, uh, McConnell. Yeah, they. Yeah, but everyone's hypocritical. And I think the public has come to understand that everyone is hypocritical. And that's why so many American voters, especially swing voters that aren't necessarily wedded to one party or the other, are just fed up with the whole thing. And they think it's just Republicans and Democrats blaming each other. Um, I do not think that impeachment or is 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 appropriate and helpful for the Democrats' long-term interests. There are some purists, and that includes some candidates for president, who probably think that in terms of playing to the base, it's great to suggest let's go get Trump. And frankly, in a perfect world, he should be removed from office. And I've certainly been uh, critical of Trump over the years in your program in many, many mm -hmm. ways. So it's certainly not that I'm in any sense a booster of Trump. I just think it's dumb politically. Um, at the moment, unless more evidence comes out, and that evidence is not likely to come, in part because Trump and it was not cooperating and was doing everything he would not uh, su submit himself to, te to testify personally, and clearly he was blocking other people from, uh, from participating in the process as well. Um, even if there were an impeachment, though, if we go by the timeline associated with the, the Clinton administration, we would be well into next year now before the end this was to be resolved. 2020 is an election year. Strategically, politically, I think the smart move on the part of Democrats is to, to go for the election and not worry about uh, placating the, the base any more than Trump is being successful in placating his base to the exclusion of swing voters who ultimately are going to determine who wins the next election. There's a different attitude here, too, though, isn't there? And I know that there's going to be and probably always will be comparators between this and Watergate. Now, but there's maybe some similarities, but an awful lot of differences. And maybe one of the biggest ones is the attitude of core supporters. Uh, we, we were shocked, even Republicans were shocked when they found out about Nixon and, and, and the tapes and the telephone calls and, of course, his involvement uh, when we started hearing some of those telephone calls about the cover-up itself. The more we discover about Donald Trump, and, and this is not just speculation, these are realities and truisms that we're discovering about Trump, bury his base just say, so what? Yep. Who cares? I mean, even Rudy Giuliani, I'm sure you saw on Sunday on the on the, the Sunday morning political shows, was saying there's nothing wrong with getting information from the Russians. What's what's the big deal? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure that Giuliani actually helps <laughs> helps Trump, but Trump loves him because he says all the right things, you know, as, as he sees it. Look, I think enormous harm is being done to the Republican Party in the long run through this for a whole bunch of reasons, including antagonizing the growing number of. Um, of, of minorities that are uh, going to have a greater demographic role in the U.S. Um, this is not this does not end well for the Republicans in the long run, but for the next couple of years, it's going to sort of uh, filter on this way. You're quite right. The Republicans have been conditioned, and uh, Barr certainly added to that that this whole thing is a witch hunt. They want us to think it's a witch hunt, so they think it's a witch hunt. They watch um, cable news on Fox, which has a very different kind of take than most of the other channels. Um, and I, I hope the Democrats don't fall into the same trap of the Republicans of, of listening only to their base. 
their base that, in fact, was ready to Im- Im- impeach Trump. And I, I, I think Trump was unfit from the beginning, even before he was elected. So it's not that I'm in any sense sympathetic to Trump, but that if the Democrats allow themselves to be as extreme as the Republicans, that's the one thing that might give Trump a shot at being, um, being reelected. Trump wants to talk about impeachment. Most Americans, especially swing voters, not hardcore Democrats or hardcore Republicans, but most swing voters don't want to hear about this. They want to hear about health care. They want to hear about education. They want to hear about other issues that are going to be relevant to them. They don't even understand. Oh, they only know that Republicans and Democrats hate each other. This, this was going on before Trump was around, but Trump has only made it so much worse. There is a strategy they could follow, though, is there not, Barry? I mean, it, without going down that impeachment road, and I agree with you, I think most Americans, I think the poll I saw the, uh, the other day, uh, 49% said they don't think impeachment was uh, in the cards. And that's not because they're Trump supporters, it's just they think it's the wrong road to go. But if, if, the, if the stated goal of the Democrats in, at, at this point is to get that information out there, in other words, to try to quote-unquote educate the American people about what really went on, they can do that through judicial hearings. They can bring Mueller in front of them. They can bring, uh, you know, the Trump lawyer, the White House lawyer. There's a whole list yeah, of people no. they can bring under oath and, and have that testimony out there without actually saying, and, and going down the impeachment road at all, they simply have to have that information out there. That seems to be the road that Nancy Pelosi, and she's certainly the most pivotal figure in this because she's the only Democrat in Washington that has true power in terms of controlling one of the branches of Congress. Uh, that, that seems to be the, um, we, we have not heard the end of, the, of the, the dirt on Trump, but most Americans have probably made up their own minds. I think a lot of Republicans understand the flaws and the problems associated with Trump, although they like the policy outcomes. And most of the Republicans in Congress, privately, I understand, I haven't talked to them personally, but that uh, they, they say the same things, but they will not go public with it. They know that Trump is an embarrassment in many ways, but they've made a deal with the devil. They're prepared because of the fact they've gotten the judicial nominations. They haven't gotten a whole lot of policy changes, but they did get the tax cuts. Those are policies they were happy with. But more importantly for them, they're afraid of their core voters that might defeat them in primaries, because that's just what happened with uh, Sanford in South Carolina and, and uh, with the, the senator from um, uh, from Arizona, both of them were defeated because in the primary at the primary level because of the fact that, um, that that Trump went after them. So they're afraid of Trump's connection with the base, even though that base is only a fraction, a small fraction of the American public in general. It's enough to end their political careers. Barry, Some of them will be defeated in general elections, but yeah. most of them, and that's what happened in the the midterms last November. Uh, the uh, the Democrats picked up some uh, some forty seats in the uh, or close to forty seats in the uh, in the House of Representatives. Um, but a lot, a lot of those seats are gone now, and indeed there may be a few more to be won. There's certainly a couple of Senate seats that the Republicans are vulnerable in. But that's the calculation that the Republicans have made, that in fact they, the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. We're afraid of our voters liking Trump, and Trump is popular with 35% or so or whatever, a little bit more sometimes. They, they, again, it varies between 35 and the, the low to mid-40s. But he's never, ever been at the 50% level in anything, and I don't think he's going to get there. The, the Democrats can blow it by basically antagonizing enough people uh, to, to either stay home because they're fed up with the Democrats, too, or to encourage more Republicans to come out to vote. Nancy Pelosi and a number of congressional committee chairs, and certainly Nadler in the, the Judiciary Committee is the chair of that committee, they are going to have hearings, they are going to investigate. More is going to come out. The New York Times and the Washington Post are providing all sorts of stories. That isn't coming to an end. But in terms of campaigning, that the, the signature issues should be related to things that swing voters in America care about, and that's things like health care and education. The swing states uh, that won Trump are still going to be in play here. You know, that's Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Ohio, and, of course, Florida. 
uh, and and you can probably throw a couple of others in there too. Can the Democrats walk and chew gum at the same time? Can they can they go down these judicial hearings about Trump and try to expose some of this, and at the same time? focus and get the message out about these key issues that won them all those seats in the midterms? Oh, I think, I think they will, and I think that's the smart move. I think there will be investigations and there will be stories about Trump, but there is not going to be the threat overhanging of removing him from office, because it's not going to happen anyway. Um, and I think people like Elizabeth Warren, I, I think it perhaps was important for her campaign to sort of suggest that she was going to be the first presidential candidate to be out there saying Trump must be uh, must must be removed from office. In a, in a perfect world, he should be. But that's it's not going to happen, and this gets back to the flaws of the American Constitution. Frankly, I don't think impeachment even means anything anymore. It just means more hearings going nowhere. But so much of what Congress does is like that now. I'll, I'll repeat something I'm sure I've said on your program in the past, which is that when the U.S. Constitution was written in 1787, it was written by the likes of Hamilton and Madison in anticipation of there being no political parties. There was supposed to be sort of a big nonpartisan legislature where people would reason together and compromise. That ended by 1800. That was a long, long time ago. <laughs> and today, the partisanship and the polarization is worse than ever. And as long as Republicans and Democrats don't care about anything other than who's playing for their team, the notion that an impeachment procedure can, can be meaningful, I think, is, is irrelevant. It's just not going to happen. It didn't happen in 98. It did happen with, with the Watergate. But that was because the evidence was overwhelming, and frankly, there were a lot of other things that were different then. You didn't have a Fox News, which was there to cheer people on and provide a narrative which was very different from the mainstream news media. It's been suggested that if, in fact, Fox News existed back in 74 when the whole Nixon thing came apart, that indeed perhaps he wouldn't have left office either. So, again, the circumstances are different now. I don't think impeachment, I don't want to say it can never work in the future, but it's, it's unlikely to work as long as you've got such a deep division and polarization and cleavage between Republicans and Democrats. Barry, always great to have you on the program and uh, get the smoke out of the way and give us a clear picture of what's going on. Thanks so much for this today. Bye now. Barry Kay from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.